You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. When you think about your financial plans, are you diversified? After the year we had in 2022, it is a really good question. Is it time you rebalanced or made other adjustments? Help make sure your investing strategy is right for you. Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule your complimentary wealth checkup. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But the younger we can get children and students and learners who start thinking about these ideas, the better off they're going to be because it's not going to be this shock to their system that they all of a sudden at 18 are being asked to think about the value of money that they've never thought about that before. Hey, everyone. I'm Jean Chatsky. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Was money something that you learned about in school? No, I'm not talking about math class like geometry or pre-calculus where you learn the definition of a polygon or parametric equations and maybe had some money thrown in along the way. I'm talking about actual personal finance. While some of us were fortunate enough to learn personal finance from our parents or maybe from an aunt who was the one who was good with money, Most of us never took a singular personal finance class before we opened our first bank account or got our first job, in large part because those classes were not optional. And this is a problem because it means that many, many people are just not prepared to understand an increasingly complex financial landscape to handle what is one of the most important tools of adult existence. And that can have a huge impact on our future. It's not all bad news. It's not all doom and gloom because things are starting to change a little bit. According to NextGen Personal Finance, as of this year, 18 states guarantee some form of personal finance education before students graduate. That is a big deal because it brings the percentage of high schoolers guaranteed to take a personal finance class up to 40% in 2023. Compare that to what was going on in 2018. It was 16%. But what exactly are they teaching? in these courses if picking stocks and diversifying your portfolio isn't exactly applicable to a 16-year-old's life. They're basically learning how to make thoughtful decisions. And yes, that means not throwing all of their money into some viral crypto stock. They're learning how to weigh the costs and the benefits of the choices that they make for the short term and the long term. 
Before we jump into this episode, I want to tell you about something very exciting. It's something I've been thinking about for a long time. So if you're a regular listener, you know that we run our Finance Fix classes on a regular basis. They are geared to get you saving more, spending less, working your way towards your goals, paying down some credit card debt if you have it. It has occurred to me that one time in life where so many people need this kind of a revamp is in the 10-ish years before retirement. It's a fact that more than half of all adult Americans have never even tried to figure out how much money they'll need in retirement, which, by the way, is a huge mistake. But it's also impossible to figure that out if you don't know where your money is going now. And so we are launching a pre-retirement checkup version of Finance Fix that will not only help you with all of the things that I talked about before, but will then tell you if you are on a track that is going to enable you to make your money last for the rest of your life. And if you're not, what you have to do to get there. So grab one of the spots. There are very few left for our next session, but if it turns out to be a popular one, and I suspect it will, we'll continue to do this. Our next session starts January 23rd at 7 p.m. If you're looking for more information, you can find it at financefix.com, fix.com. That's finance fix with two X's. See you there. Today, I'm so excited to be joined by Yaneli Espinal. She is one of the country's most well-known advocates for making personal finance a high school graduation class, and she is the author of Mind Your Money, Insightful Stories and Strategies to Help You Reach Your Money Goals, as well as the host of Financially Inclined from Marketplace, which is a podcast teaching Gen Z key lessons about money in the 21st century. Yanelli, welcome. It's been a long time since we've seen each other. Yes. Thank you so much for inviting me on. I'm so excited to talk about money with you specifically. (laughs) Well, let's start with a little bit about you. What was the earliest money memory that you hold on to? Yeah. Oh, man. It probably was early elementary school. I would ask my mom and dad for money, mostly my dad, because my mom wasn't the working parent in our home. But There were a lot of class trips or scholastic book fairs at the school. And I would always go, you know, Papi, can I have five, ten dollars so I could buy something at school? And it was like standing on needles and pins, just waiting for an answer. Most of the time it's going to be no, because he often just didn't have the money left over after, you know, all the bills were paid and things like that. But also because my dad has nine children. My mom and dad have nine children. So if he gave me money, he's going to have to give all the other eight kids money. And so it was often more often a no than it was a yes. So I, yeah, I have a lot of early money memories of just asking, hey, for you know, money for snacks after school or for book fairs or for class trips and just being told, sorry, we don't have it, baby. We just don't have the money. I can't give you because then I have to give your brothers and sisters. And so that I think those early experiences put in this concept in my mind that, oh, there's never enough money. Dad never has enough. We never have enough. You grew up, as you said, one of nine siblings in a very small apartment in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Your dad didn't even have a bank account for much of your 
young life. Do you, not to put you on the couch, but to put you on the couch, do you feel like you wound up in this world where you teach people about money because you were trying to fix this scenario for you and for others? Oh, man. I mean, I would say yes. I think mostly because of the fact that when I finally figured it out, there was this sense of like injustice, like wrongdoing. You know, how could I not have been taught? I went through kindergarten all the way through high school graduation, four years of college, two years of my master's. For a lot of people, that's a lot more education than most. And yet nowhere in any of that schooling that I get a single class about basic money management, just the basics, banking, budgeting, understanding interest rates, credit, what's a credit score. I just never got any of, of those lessons. And so I think when I first started to figure out money, and that it was really after graduating college, I had a lot of credit card debt. And I finally started reading books about money and figuring out, oh, like this is why the debt's spiraling out of control because of the double digit interest rates. This is why I got to pay more than the minimum every month towards my credit card bills. Once those lessons started to like cement for me, then I was like, wait, if I don't know these things and I'm the kid that made it out of my neighborhood, the one that got a scholarship to college, the one that is ambitious and achieved great academic things, if that kid didn't learn this stuff, then what about all the others who didn't go as far academically or leave for college or anything like that? Do they just not get it at all? And the fact that I felt lucky to get it, so it just made me feel this sense of like responsibility to take what I had learned and bring it back to my community, bring it back to my friends, my family, and people that I honestly don't know if they otherwise would be getting these lessons um, and this information. Like me, before you started teaching other people, you made a lot of mistakes on your own. I came out of college very quickly racked up about a half year's salary in credit card debt. Um, now, granted, my salary at the time, I was starting in a, as a journalist in the 80s. It wasn't very high, but it was still, it was a lot, a lot of money yeah. to me. Right. You did the same thing. And, and one of the reasons that you give for doing that is that you wanted to fit in, which I think is so honest. And so many of us can relate to, right? We yeah. we call it FOMO. That's we right. call it all of those, you know, it's the impulse shopping that we do on Instagram. Tell me about that time in your life and what was it that made you decide you needed to make a change? Yeah. Oh, man. It was like the early days of social media. Back when I was in college, there was really only Facebook. There wasn't much else. And so, I mean, I just, I remember we would go out, all my friends and I would go out to a party, we would take pictures and immediately walk back into the dorm room, pull up the laptop and upload the photos from that night to Facebook, <laughs> to a Facebook album, right? And so it became this, this ritual, this routine of go out, you take pictures of your outfit and what you did and who you were hanging out with and all the shenanigans and then boom, immediately get back and post it right away. And it was almost like a contest, like who's going to post pictures first? Who's going to post first for what happened tonight? And then I found myself thinking about myself as if I was like this celebrity. I would think, oh, I already wore that red dress with those black shoes and it's on Facebook now. So people saw it. So I can't wear that same red dress again. And I definitely can't pair it with those black shoes again because then people are going to see that, oh, she wore the same outfit twice. And 
who am I? Like, am I J-Lo? I mean, it, it just it, <laughs> like it just didn't make sense. Like I had these thoughts of grandeur, like, oh, people are paying attention to me. Nobody was checking for me. Nobody was looking at what outfits I was wearing. It was all in my head. But I had this notion that, oh, people are looking at it. And if they judge me or if they you know make fun of me, then that's going to hurt my social status. And I can't take that kind of blow. So I was so preoccupied with what I wore. And if people saw me in that outfit and I can't wear it twice and my nails and my hair, my makeup and the shoes that I wore and all of these superficial things that I never really sat to reflect on, like, am I using my money in a way that makes sense, right? That aligns with my values, that actually uh, gets things that matter to me. (laughs) And I thought that those things really did matter to me because I was on, you know, on a campus with a bunch of other 20-somethings. And we all were just constantly focusing on those things that mattered at that place and at that time. But thinking bigger, thinking beyond those four years of college, we never really set time aside to do that. So if, if I could go back and think bigger, think beyond those four years, oh my goodness, I would have used my money way differently. And I would have done things just completely differently when it comes to how I was uh, spending the money, especially you know, I was, I had multiple jobs in college. So of course I had cash coming to my checking account multiple times throughout the month from different jobs, but I was spending on the credit cards in a way that by the time I got my paychecks, it was almost as if it didn't matter that I was paid because I owed more than what I was earning because of my out of control spending on the credit cards. And so a lot of that was consumerism, was obsessing over looking a certain way and fitting in and not being judged by others. And I mean, I I wish I could go back and shake myself when I was 21 and go like, girl, this stuff doesn't matter. Like, get your head in the game, you know? Look, you eventually got it, as did I. But what was the step? What was the first step in making the change for you? Was it a light bulb that just went on? Was it an event that happened? Was it a bill that you couldn't pay? What was it? I think for me, it was this slow shift, especially through reading books about money. One of the books that comes to mind that really like just threw me for a loop was The Millionaire Next Door. The Millionaire Next Door is one of those books. It's a classic and it's got a lot of research conducted with specifically with interviews of first generation millionaires. So these aren't folks who were born wealthy or with trust funds or anything like that. Like they are the first in their family to access a million dollars or more of wealth. And so they get together all these thousands of first generation millionaires. These are people who don't know each other. They've never met each other. They're just all being interviewed in this study. And the authors compile all the answers and look at the average results from all of the different answers provided by these first-gen millionaires. And again, thousands of people who've never met each other, yet you notice the answers are way too similar for this to be a coincidence. It's like, it's not a coincidence. This is the strategy that leads to success. And especially if you are going to be the first in your family to try to access a net worth as high as a million or more or higher. These are the strategies. They're tried and true. You've got thousands of people telling you the same answers over and over again. And what I noticed is that in my mind, I had this notion that like celebrities and famous people, millionaires and multimillionaires, they live a certain way, right? They buy lavish things. They have a boat. They drive Teslas. They have fancy clothes and shoes and jewelry and all kinds of expensive bags and things, right? And they have a chef and a maid and all these things. And 
that's because it's glamorized online and in the media that way, reality television and all these things give us stories of people living like that, living these lavish lifestyles. But in The Millionaire Next Door, it was like so real to me, like these real people who attained this type of wealth for the first time in their family, they don't live like that. They're talking no. about how they never spend more than maybe $200 on a good suit. Maybe they don't spend more than $100 or $40 even like on a watch. They would never spend more than this much on a pair of shoes or on a car. And they bought a house and they lived in it for decades. And that's how they put their kids through college because they didn't buy too much house. And they invested in 529 savings plans when their kids were young. And they left wiggle room in their budget so that they had extra money for things like saving for vacations and putting money aside for college for their kids. And a lot of them were entrepreneurs. A lot of them owned businesses. And so all of these trends just started to pop up and I go, wow, I never heard any of this stuff. I don't know anybody personally in my life who invested in a 529 plan when they had young kids. I don't know anybody personally who is an entrepreneur, runs their own business. Most of the people in my community are just happy if they can get a good, safe government job and just work that thing until they retire and, and get all the benefits. And that's the kind of thinking I have been exposed to early on. So when I read that book, it just kind of flipped that on its head. It made me realize that maybe I need to change some of my thoughts and beliefs and ideas about money and the role that it plays in my life and how accessible wealth is to me, what I need to do to get there. I want to talk about the things that you specifically believe that children need to know these days and how parents who are still often thrust into the position of being the teachers can impart those lessons. But before we do that, we're going to take a very quick break. And just a reminder, I hope you've been listening to our new podcast. It's called how She Does It. Our host, Karen Feinerman, recently interviewed Lisa Edelstein on the show. You may know her best as Dr. Lisa Cuddy from House. And Lisa is now an artist, and she talks about her creative process, how she recently pivoted from acting to painting. We love her story. The interview's great. I hope that you'll check it out. Let me know what you think. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. When you take a look at your financial plans, are you diversified the way you want to be? And when is the last time you rebalanced your portfolio or made sure you're invested in the assets and allocation appropriate for you? Look, we all need to make tweaks and adjustments to our financial lives, sometimes small ones, sometimes big ones. Thankfully, Edelman Financial Engines can help no matter what change your money might need most. Visit planEFE.com slash hermoney to learn more and schedule your complimentary wealth checkup. Do you have thoughts about this show that you'd love to share? Share with me. Well, it's time for our annual podcast and community survey. And personally, I'd love to know what you're thinking because your feedback shapes everything that we do here. So please spend a few minutes sharing your thoughts. And as a thank you for your time, we are giving away Amazon gift cards and, of course, some other Her Money swag. Can't wait to hear what you think. Click the link in the show notes to take the survey. Let's address a crucial topic and one of our hot button issues here at Her Money, women outliving their retirement savings. 
It's a huge problem, but it's one Parity Flex, the multi-year guaranteed annuity available from GameBridge, is designed to fix. If you're not familiar with annuities, the concept is essentially that you take a chunk of money and turn it into a paycheck that you can start drawing on when you want to, next year or next decade. With guaranteed returns at 5.95% APY, the Parity Flex multi-year guaranteed annuity also features a guaranteed lifetime withdrawal benefit, which ensures a consistent income even if your account balance is zero. And if there's one thing better than a successful retirement, it's a stress-free retirement. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for important information. This is a paid endorsement. We are back with Yanelli Espinal, author of Mind Your Money. So I know you are a huge advocate for personal finance education in schools. In your book, you say, at the time of this writing, only one out of four American high school students is required to take a full semester personal finance class before crossing the graduation stage. For low-income students like me, the number drops to one out of 20. When we talk about educating students, middle school students, high schoolers, about personal finance, what are the most important things they need to understand? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is, what is money and what is the role of money in our lives? How do you define it? Yeah, I think the first question is a little easier. You know, what is money? Technically, these days, the definition of money has really expanded, given that there's now cryptocurrency in the world, right? These children growing up in this day and age are exposed to ideas that we never, ever were made to consider when we were growing up, which is that you could digitize money fully and completely in such a way where there's no physical object that represents the money. And so I think that that gives us a nice expansive definition that money can be anything that a society at large agrees is going to be used for goods and services and for the repayment of debts. So I think if we can get students to understand that when you're going to need goods and services to be provided to you or given to you, you're going to have to have money so that you can actually get access to those things and to provide your family with security and safety and to be able to retire with dignity, right? Uh, and so that concept, I think, is a lot easier to teach because you can go through history and show students back in the day, civilizations used to use cattle as money. They used to use wampum. They used shells and like tulips were money at one point. Like what, you know, so we can get students to like assess, is this a good form of money? Why or why not? If I have to travel from America to Europe, I got to bring my cattle with me. Is that a good way to bring money with me to pay for things? Probably not because it's not very portable. right? And so we could easily get students, young learners to grapple with ideas of what money is, why we need it and what makes good forms of money and what maybe is not such a good form of money. That way they can understand why we've gotten to the point where we have paper money and coins and credit cards and debit cards to facilitate the use of money. But one of the dangerous things is now the role that money plays in our lives, because that's not something we can teach as a matter of fact. That's going to be a little bit more values based. The role that money plays in your life could be very different from the role money plays in my life. And my 20 year old self had a very different value system around money than my current early 30s self. So it can also change for us as we evolve and grow in 
in life. But the younger we can get children and students and learners who start thinking about these ideas, the better off they're going to be because it's not going to be this shock to their system that they all of a sudden at 18 are being asked to think about the value of money that they've never thought about that before. The earlier you start thinking about it, the better off you're going to be with just having a relationship with money and understanding your own personal value system around money. So I think there's some fun ways to do that. One of the activities I love doing is called the Bean Game. It's a budgeting activity. It's a classic one. Um, But at NGPF, we actually created a template for teachers to just be able to print it out. And so you grab a couple of dry beans and you give students a couple of those, I think 20 beans per student. Then they have the printout of the budget template. And if you want to live at home with your family and save money, you got to put one bean under housing. If you want a roommate and you want to share an apartment, but, you know, not your family, it's just a friend and you, you can put two beans under housing. But if you want to have your own bachelorette pad and you don't want to live with anybody, you got to put three beans under housing. So now that leaves you with 17 beans left. You got to go now to the next category of your budget and your spending. So by the time they cover their expenses with groceries, with their bills, the needs that they have that they need to cover, and then they go over to like shopping, clothes, food, uh, Wi-Fi, their cell phone, what kind of phone they want to have, what kind of car they want to drive or transportation method they want to use. Then the beans start to go really quickly and they start to get nervous. Like, wait, but I'm not going to have any beans left for fun. I'm not going to have any beans left for me. And that's a really great activity early on because I think the most important lesson we can impart in young children learning about money is this concept of trade-offs. That whenever you use a dollar to buy this thing over here, there's a trade-off that you're making by not using it to get that thing over there. So the earlier we can get them to recognize that, then we can get them to understand that you can't get everything and anything and everything that you want. So you have to be really clear about what is it that matters to you so that when you have your money, you can then choose wisely based on the things that matter to you the most, not based on what you think you're supposed to have or you're supposed to spend your money on based on society or based on your friends or based on other ideas that aren't rooted in who you are and how you want to live your life. I've always thought that when it comes to parents, the two things that work are some form of an allowance, but an allowance done correctly, an allowance given with a list of things that you know your children want, but that you as the parent are no longer willing to buy, that they actually have to come out of pocket for and make choices, just like you're talking about. You don't want to give them so much money that it's easy for them to make these choices. You want them to have to think about it. The other important lesson, and I know it was true for you, it was true for me, I've been working since I was 11 years old, is that you got to work for somebody other than your family. Uh, You've got to earn money because money given to you does not have the same value as money you earn. It's only when you start to do the math in your mind that this amount of money is worth this amount of time that the light bulb goes off. That's right. Yeah. Are there are there other lessons that you think parents should be imparting and how the, how do they do it? Yeah, I think to me, a lot of it is just conversations. Oftentimes what I see is that parents, they shy away from talking about money completely. And this could be for two reasons. One is the parent themselves doesn't feel financially secure. Maybe they have some mistakes that they've made with money in the past, a bad credit score, bad investments that they made or investment choices that didn't you know, pay off. Whatever the specific issue financially that they have, that is giving them this 
insecurity around talking about money. And they have this fear then that like, but what if my kid asks me, mom, what's your credit score? What if they ask me, mom, how much money do you have invested for retirement? That's scary. That is so scary. That fear completely stops them in their tracks and they don't enter into those conversations with their children. So for me, I think the way that you impart the important lessons on your children is not to make it about you. This is not about mommy. This is not about daddy. This is about do you understand this concept, right? It's like teaching kids math, right? You're not going to be afraid if they ask you, mom, do you know how to do this? You're just going to make sure that your children know how to do the problems on their homework assignment, right? That you, you want them to be able to do the specific activities or assignments that they're being assigned, that they can do that. So for me, that's recognizing what are the key lessons that you want your children to understand and then having conversations and discussions at home that are rooted in that. So what would help a person get a better credit score? What would make a person and lose points on their credit score, right? Keep this general and start teaching those kind of concepts. And again, if a child was, if I had a kid and they asked me, mommy, what's your credit score? I would say, okay, baby, let's say I tell you my credit score. Is that going to make you savvier about credit? Or is it going to make you savvier about credit to learn a list of things that anyone could do to get more points on their credit score, like paying their bills on time and spending only a small fraction of the credit limit available on their credit card and making sure to have a long history of age of credit, right? Not taking on too many accounts, not taking on too much debt that they can't repay. If I can teach you those things, you're going to be so much savvier with credit. But if I just tell you my credit score, it's not really going to do anything for you. So let's focus on the things that are going to make you savvy, okay? Let's focus on these facts, right? Because I think the more kids are going to be, of course, they're going to be curious and they're going to ask you some personal questions, but that's not a reason to allow the fear to block you from talking to them. I think it's just redirecting the conversation. So it's, oh, it's not about mommy, it's not about daddy. It's about what you are going to be able to learn that's going to make you better with money and make you savvier under each of these topics. What's going to make you better at knowing how to get the right bank accounts, understanding what's good for your credit score and what's not, responsible borrowing behaviors, uh, being able to identify whether something is a, a good investment for someone or not based on their goals and based on their timeline, right? So to me, that's the best lesson you could give kids is to give them the information that they need to make informed choices and how to think about choices for anybody, but not to allow that fear to stop you from entering into those conversations. And hopefully that shift, that redirecting language might help a few of the people listening to say, oh, you know what? That's true. If they ask me about me, I'll just say, oh, that's not, it's not about me. It's not about this. Here, let's talk more about the things that are going to make you smarter and then are going to make you savvier with money. I think parents can use that advice and apply it to everything across the board. Your kids want to talk about what you drank in high school? You just put it right back on. Let's talk about what's good for you and turn the tables on them a little bit. You mentioned bank accounts, and, and I do want to ask about that. CNBC published a survey recently. They found that 6 in 10, even more, of middle-income Americans are earning less than 3% on their primary savings accounts because they're just not aware of current interest rates or they don't believe that moving money to high interest savings accounts is worthwhile. You get into this a little bit in chapter three of your book. The title is Don't Bank with Mean Girls. Love that, by the way. When should kids have their first accounts and how do you teach them that at least these days, good interest rates are there for the taking? Yeah. You know, I mean, I think that the earlier, the better. 
there's actually studies that show there's a correlation with higher savings rates and better financial straits in general, the earlier you have a bank account. So the earlier you open your first savings account, the more you save, the less debt you have, the better your credit score ends up being. So there's just so many benefits to having a savings account as early as possible. And I mean, for me personally, I in college, I had a checking account. But then my savings account, I never actually used. And so it's like I didn't really have any money in there. And I didn't think, oh, savings is something that I should be doing. There's money in there that I'm saving. That's why it's called a savings account. Like that just wasn't top of mind to me. So I think for me, the importance of having one early and actually putting some money in there so you can actually have that idea in your mind that there's a goal for this. This is saving for something tomorrow, not for me to spend today is so important. And then, you know, I think back to, when I was talking to my niece, which was probably about maybe eight years old when she said this to me, but we were together and she was telling me, yeah, I want an iPhone. I really want an iPhone. And I was like, but sweetie, why do you want an iPhone? When I was your age, I was playing with Legos and reading Amelia Bedelia books. I mean, I was just like, I don't, I don't know. Why do you want a phone? That's for the adults. You should be like enjoying your childhood, like, you know, be a kid. And then she said, but yeah, if I get a phone, then I can buy anything that I want. And it clicked to me that she watches her mom use the tap to pay on the phone, like the Apple Pay and the Google Pay and the Samsung Pay. And because no one's talking to her about the bank account that actually has the money or the credit card that's linked to the phone, it's now in her mind cemented that that phone taps to pay for stuff. So the money is the phone. The phone is the money. So I think to me, like the having the bank account allows you now to have an anchor that you can point to for the kids to understand, you know, yes, you see a plastic credit card or you see me tap my phone, but that's just connecting to a certain place where the money is being taken out of. What place is that? The bank account. Remember the one that we opened for you where you had 50 bucks that grandma gave you? That's the bank account that holds the money. And so it's coming out of there. It's not just this free money floating around in phones, right? And like, and to me, that's the dangerous part of what we were talking about earlier, where if parents have this fear or this block and they don't talk to their children, what are their children internalizing that they don't even realize because they're not talking about money at all? So with my niece, I, I immediately called my sister. I was like, girl, your daughter thinks that your phone is money. <laughs> you need to start talking to her. <laughs> we need to start talking about money and we need to open a bank account for her so she can understand. Because a lot of times, if it's not tactile, that like they can actually touch it and feel it or understand the concept of where things are, then of course it's loose. It's up there floating. It's conceptual. And kids don't do well in the conceptual. We have to really make it tactile for them. So I would say open a bank account as early as possible and start using it to anchor a lot of the conversations around where the money's coming from. And if I want something and I don't have enough, then I need to put more money in the account, which means I need to work or earn the money somehow so that I can afford to, to get that, that thing that I want. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask them all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? Well, we hear you and we have been there too. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. Who are we? I'm Dr. Jess Steyer, a public health scientist and also co-host of the Unbiased Science Podcast. Every day, I'll chat with one or both of your new pediatrician besties, Dr. Dina DiMaggio, a general pediatrician, and Dr. Anthony Porto, a pediatric gastroenterologist. We'll talk about all the things related to our kids' health, from dealing with a colicky infant to navigating puberty in the teenage years. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, 
now live on all podcast platforms. Yeah, the more things change, the more they stay the same. I remember this conversation vividly with my daughter. It wasn't a phone that she thought was money. It was a machine that she thought was money. We were in some sort of a store. I did not want to buy something. And I should have just said, I don't want to buy that. But what I said was, I don't have the money right now. And she said, just get it. The machine is around the corner. And the ATM machine. Yeah, the ATM. You can you can go and you can just, there's a magic machine and the machine has money. And we had a whole conversation about, well, the machine has money because I have a bank account and I put the money into the bank account and I work to get that money. And very, very shortly after that, she had her own first bank account. So uh, it's very cyclical. Yanelli, thank you so much for a great conversation. Where can our listeners get the book and learn more about you? Yeah, you can head over to mindyourmoneybook.com. There's a link to buy the book and there's also a free guide on the site with lots of recommendations. I mean, you know, Jean, you've got multiple books, but like when you publish a book, you can't really update it or change it once it's out. And maybe a couple of years go by, you put a new version out there. But I wanted to make sure that I could update and change um, links and, and resources. And so I created this free guide. Um, one of my favorite things about the free guide is I have a list on a spreadsheet of over 200 financial influencers or financial creators on TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, all the places. So all you got to do is open the spreadsheet, click and follow, and you can transform your social media feed from not just the things that are being targeted to you and the things that you like to follow for fun, but also people that are talking about money on social media. So there's all that and also the link to the book at mindyourmoneybook.com. Absolutely. So nice to see you. Congratulations on everything you're doing and thanks for teaching our kids. Thank you so much. Before we dive into our mailbag, a quick word from our sponsors. And we are back for Mailbag. My daughter, Julia, is joining us. Hey, Jules. Hello. How's it going? So it's going okay. It's mid-January. Did you make New Year's resolutions? No, I didn't. Do you ever? I don't. I just can't stick to them. So you decided that it's better to try to not do them at all? I just, it's not for me. Not for me at all. Do you? No, not really. So maybe you got that from me. The statistics that I read on New Year's resolutions basically show that by this point in January, about half of all the people who set them have abandoned them. Yeah. So I think it's better to set a goal. Adam and I are doing something he calls 30 days hard. What is that? It's um, an Adam coined term. It just means 30 days of clean eating, of consistent exercise, and hopefully I will see some drops on the scale. So that way he can prove to me that I can actually do this if I commit. That's good. But that's it. 30 days. Almost there. I'm doing dry January. And they say that by telling people, you are more likely to continue along towards your goal. So I just told thousands and thousands of people and, and that should help me make it to the end of the month. Yeah, I'll ask you in a few weeks. All right. All right. We got some questions. Let's dig in. Let's get into it. Our first question comes from Jen. She writes, hello. I'm trying to mentor a teenage girl on finances. I've used your book, How to Money, as a tool to help our discussions. I have her on a teen debit account, and I monitor her spending through the bank account. 
she has a job which provides a steady paycheck and has been pretty good about spending. However, there's one concept that I haven't been able to get through to her. She has other people in her life who are not financially stable, and she has learned that spending money is a negative thing that leads to being poor, her word, and she will make animated comments about seeing her bank balance go below a certain amount, stressing her out. I have tried to explain to her that it's her budget that matters and not the dollar amount in her account on a certain day. And that if she has allocated a monthly or yearly amount to spend on something in particular, let's call it lunches with friends, entertainments, and she stays within her allocation, then the amount in her bank account on any given day doesn't matter. She is almost 18 and the teen account will close soon. I worry I have not done enough for her before she's on her own with an adult bank account. Do you have any advice to teach a young person that overseeing their own money is not scary and is in fact empowering and how to get over the psychological aspects of seeing other adults in her life go through financial hardships due to making bad financial decisions? Thank you for what you do and for writing the phenomenal book for teen girls. I couldn't have gone so far with my mentee without that book as a guide. I am grateful. Jennifer. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for writing. Thanks for a great question. And thank you so much for helping this girl with her finances. She is really lucky to have you in her life. I think, and I don't know that you're going to like this answer, but I don't think that you should fight her fears so much on this one. We all grow up with a money story. We grow up with a history of being influenced when it comes to money that is shaped not by what people have tried to teach us, but by what we've experienced, what we've seen, what we've felt. And these are things that take hold at really, really young ages. And I'm talking about three years old, four years old, five years old. And we can't unsee these things. They are part of us. And as we grow up, if we explore them, sometimes through therapy, we can deal with them. And we can come up with ways of working around them. But they're kind of like a scary dream that you can't unsee. Your money story is part of you. Her money story is that she is fearful that she's not going to have enough. That is exactly how she is explaining it to you, that she's going to be poor if she drops her balance below a particular level. That feeling is a terrible feeling to her. And so I think rather than trying to help her understand that flows of funds go up and down, I would open a savings account for her, help her open a savings account in addition to her checking or spending account with the debit card and help her get on a path where she has enough in that savings account that she's not going to touch so that she doesn't feel poor. I think that will enable her to do a little of what the behavioral finance experts call mental accounting. It'll help her sort of separate. This is my account for being safe. This is my account for spending. And by doing that, I think that she will feel freer 
to spend the money that's in her checking account. I don't really worry that she is going to overdraw. I don't worry that she's going to go into debt because that doesn't seem to be who she is. And finally, in terms of continuing to help her, I understand that you're no longer going to be able to monitor her account, but that doesn't mean that she isn't going to be willing to share the information with you. Arrange a regular time once a month where you can go over her finances with her and you can continue to make suggestions about how to move her along because she's going to be very quickly moving into the years where maybe she wants to open a Roth IRA with some of that income. Maybe she works for a company that has a retirement account and she wants to participate. Maybe she's going to have to choose a health insurance plan. You're going to be able to help her make all of these really important decisions. So very, very grateful for your question and thank you for helping her. I think that was all great advice, Mom. Thanks, Jules. We've got one more. All right. Our next question comes from Cindy. She writes... Hello, Jean and Julia. Just found your podcast and so grateful I did. My question would be around Social Security and divorce and retirement. I am turning 65 this year, planning on filing for divorce after 45 plus years, began working again five and a half years ago after being out of the workforce for 25 years, so my personal Social Security benefit would be very small. I am still working so that I have benefits, but hearing rumors of downsizing. So I am trying to educate myself, but not go into fear mode. Thank you for any advice or direction you can give. With gratitude, Cindy. Hi, Cindy. Thanks so much for the question. I am, boy, I'm sorry that you are going through all of the different things that you are going through right now, but I'm glad that you found us and glad that you are approaching this question thoughtfully. It's an important one. Many people don't really realize that the question of when to take Social Security benefits is one of the most important financial decisions that they'll make in their entire lives. You've got options that you may not know about right now. When you file for divorce or when you are divorced, you are eligible to claim Social Security benefits on your prior spouse's record as long as you were married for at least 10 years. Now, you don't get their full benefit as long as they are alive. You get half of their benefit. But because your own Social Security benefit is so small, your former spouse's benefit, even half of your former spouse's benefit, may be more than that. Get in touch with the Social Security Administration. You can just call them and you can ask that question so that you know what's happening going forward. Either way, not claiming Social Security until you are older until you get closer to 70 or your ex-spouse does, is going to benefit you in many, many cases. And for that reason, I would perhaps embark on a job hunt at the very same time. If you're hearing rumors of downsizing in your company, it's a good time to start putting out feelers and looking for another job. And if you are able to continue working and continue earning 
as you get closer to 70 or even into your early 70s, that is just going to benefit your financial situation in so many ways. And having gone through a divorce, I also can tell you that working, being out there, being in a social setting, being around other people is a really nice way to stay happy and healthy and engaged and stave off the loneliness that sometimes comes along with divorce. So, Cindy, lots of luck as we head into 2024. We wish you the best. Right, Jules? Yeah, absolutely. Wish her the best. If you've got any other money-related questions, we'd love to hear from you. Just send them our way by emailing us at mailbag at hermoney.com. We are going to take a quick break. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? <laughs> you get the goofiest game in history, Queen's Podcast. Hi, I'm Nathan. And I'm Katie. And we're the hosts of Queen's Podcast. Join us while we spill the tea on women from history. We get into all kinds of stories here, like biographies of lesser known figures. For instance, Saida Haltura, powerful pirate queen. To the stories you might already know, like Marie Antoinette or Cleopatra, but with a fun twist. Each queen is paired with a cocktail that'll totally get you in the mood to hear fun, juicy, and dramatic stories from history. Because history is so much more than just dudes on a battlefield, and we believe that the female perspective Perspective and roles are just as deserving of their time in the spotlight. Right. So come get to know these queens. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers. And we're back with your money tip of the week. Have you been dragging your feet when it comes to learning about money in a practical way? In other words, becoming financially literate? Well, you're listening to this podcast, so that is a really good step in the right direction. But it's also important to know, so you can remind others in your life, that not learning the basics of finance it's pretty expensive. It costs almost $2,000 a year. How do we know this? Well, every year since 2017, the National Financial Educators Council has asked a sample of U.S. adults how much they think they've lost financially during the prior year because they just didn't know enough about their money. This year, the average answer was a whopping $1,800. That is the highest in the years that the survey has been completed. And it's the cost of not knowing how to negotiate, not knowing how to manage your credit score, even not knowing how to shop around for the best deal. So if you are ready to take the plunge on becoming even more financially literate this year? Join us for our next session of Finance Fix. We've got one starting each month this year in 2024. Hope to see you there. Thank you for joining me today on Her Money, and thanks so much to Yanelli Espinal for breaking down why teaching high schoolers personal finance basics will set them up for future success. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Edelman Financial Engines. Her Money is produced by Haley Pascalides. This show is mixed and mastered by CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Check out our new podcast, How She Does It with Karen Feinerman, for intimate cocktail party-style conversations with today's most talented female leaders. 
This podcast is also part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. You can find us and other shows like us at airwavemedia.com. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon. Thank you.